0: All right, welcome, well we're gonna kick off a new series which Michael will unpack in full. It's called Beyond Tribalism. Very interesting, very topical. Um, I contemplated wearing some more paint, but I, we decided it probably wasn't a good idea. Um, but hey, the night's not over. Uh, you never know. Are you a bit cold, Ezra? Oh, okay, we better sort that out, put the heater on. Um, we do you notice this is at the end? Yes. All right. Sorry, I'm a last-minute um ring-in for emceeing. And, you know, because it's a nice intimate crowd, we don't have to be too formal about such things, do we? Yeah? No. Okay. Um a couple of things before we start though. Uh this these sessions are recorded. Most of you probably know that. Um, but because generally there is an element of discussion uh which is um recorded as well. If you don't want what you've said to be um, included on the podcast then come and talk to myself or Michael at the end Um, but by all means don't uh, take that as something that inhibits you from participating in conversation because the power of these uh, times together, is talking and digesting together. So uh, yes, so feel free to talk as much as you want, share as much as you like. If you don't want any of it on the podcast, we will delete it um, after we're done. So I think that's it for now. Um, hand over to Michael and then there's a few notices at the end uh, which I will uh, communicate and as we wrap up. Michael.
1: Hello. So nice to see you. Your <clears throat> peppermint tea, a eh? can't beat it. Not with tea, anyway. Um, thank you, Clint, and uh. This is our third formation series for the year, and this is actually our last formation series for the year. Um, Thank you. Um, So we'll be wrapping up sort of towards the end of November in terms of the formation space for the year. And uh, we've covered a few hefty topics in our time uh, already since we kicked off this formation thing on a Sunday at five, probably in, when was that? April? May? June? April. April. Thank you. Uh, and so we, we spent a, quite a few weeks talking about the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we got into lighter stuff like heaven and hell and the end of the world. And now we're going to talk about the state of the, uh, the globe and the future of Western civilization um, and what it means to be the church. So just the little stuff. Uh what do I want to do now? Why don't we just stand for a moment? Let's just have a little prayer before we begin. God we thank you that you are present. Thank you that you are life, that you are the source of all things good and beautiful. Uh, And may we somehow find a sense of that this evening as we sit together and talk, and even as we talk about big ideas and hefty things, may this not just be some conversation, uh, but somehow... um, that this conversation would be forming us and shaping us uh, in the way we see you, the way we see ourselves, the way we uh, think about one another and what it means to be followers of Jesus in the world we find ourselves. So may we know your spirit uh, closer than our breath this evening as we talk and share and think and pray. Amen. All right. So um a couple of weeks ago when we f- just as we were finishing up our previous series, um I put up this which is a bit of a indication of where we're going to be going over the next couple of months. Um so tonight we're going to talk about Christian Empire. Sounds like a good time. Uh overall, I guess what we're trying to do in this series is is recognize that we have a tendency as human beings to form ourselves into um, groups of belonging, and that this can be a really healthy thing, um, but it can also be a really destructive thing. And what I think it's really important for us to talk about as a Christian community is how do we talk about belonging uh, in healthy ways rather than um, belonging, whether it's to a particular religious tradition, which we do, or other things, uh, that can become forces that divide and separate and create conflict in the world. So does that sound all right? Yeah? That's what we're trying to do. So we're going to talk about Christian empire and the roots of exclusion, uh, so I won't say too much about that. more about that now. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to talk about a theology of purity and holiness and how that, when done badly, can be connected to a psychology of... Disgust uh, and how that can drive people apart, um, and how love uh, transcends and overcomes such things. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the body of Christ in a polarized world, which is really to ask what does it mean to be the church in the world that we're living in at the moment, with the kind of big uh, movements that are taking place, which we can look at and see on the news as big global trends but are also things that are happening in our communities and families and neighbourhoods in terms of how we relate to one another. So we're going to do that. We're going to tackle just the very small topic of how we think about being Christian in a world where there's now multiple religious uh, worldviews rubbing up against one another. Um, So it'll be good when we finally solve that one in October. And... um, and then we're going to have a, a final session for this series called How Do We Belong, which is really, I guess, drawing some of these thoughts together to say what does it mean to belong to one another? And in particular, what does it mean for us in the kind of city and life that we live in and have, um, whereby I think community in a meaningful way is changing and is sometimes feels inaccessible for people? So how do we kind of navigate that and what does that mean for us? Cool. Does that sound all right? That's lucky. (laughs) Otherwise, it'd be super embarrassing. Um, And then we're going to finish up with just, obviously, we have dinner each time, but we're going to make, uh, we'll have dinner as a focus, and that'll be kind of a Eucharist meal that we'll share together um, towards, what is that, the middle, mid, late November, um, which will be a way for us to kind of um, draw some of these ideas together, again, around uh, the common meal, the love feast, as it was sometimes called in the first century, which is a agape feast sounds better because love feast sounds a bit creepy. So um, that's what we're doing. What I'd like to do for starters is for us to read a story together. So I'm going to pass this out. This has a story on it. If you could just take one and pass it on. Wonderful little story by Dr. Zeus. Does anyone recognise those characters in this story? The Sneetches? Did anyone read the Sneetches when they were younger? Anybody? Any Sneetches people out there? Is there enough? Great. What I reckon we could do is you see how it's like arranged in little mini paragraphs there? Why don't we just pass pass the microphone along? And you can like read a little bit and then pass the mic. Is that all right? If you feel like, man, that's intense and overwhelming reading in public for a podcast that's going to go across the nation's because we're big time, get at least seven downloads, Um, (laughs) uh, then you can feel free to pass the mic to the next person if you don't want to do it. But if you're happy to do it, then – is that okay? You're all happy to participate? All right.
2: Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the star belly snitches had bellies with stars. The plain belly snitches had none upon thars. Those stars weren't so big, they were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all.
3: (coughs) But because they had stars, all the star belly snitches would brag. We're the best kind of snitches on the beaches. With their snoots in the ear, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right past them without even talking. When the star-belly children, when the star belly children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You only could play if your bellies had stars, and the plain belly children had none upon that.
4: When the star-belly
1: had frankenfurter roasts, or picnics, or parties, or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain belly snitches. They never. That They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away,
4: never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year after
1: year. Then one day, it seems while the plain belly snitches were moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger zipped up in the strangest of cars, My friends,
4: he announced in a voice clear and clean. My name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean, and I've heard of your troubles, I've heard you're unhappy, but I can fix that. I'm the fix-it-up chappy. I've come here to help you. I have what you need, and my prices are low, and I work with great speed, and my work is 100% guaranteed. Then, quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very peculiar machine, and he said, You want stars like a star belly snitch? My friends, you you can have them for three dollars each. Just pay me your money and hop right aboard. So they clambered inside, then the big machine roared, and it clunked, and it bonked, and it jerked. And it burked, and it bopped them about, but the thing really worked. When the plain-belly sneetches popped out, they had stars. They actually did. They had stars upon stars.
0: Then they yelled at the ones who had stars at the start. We're still the best sneetches, and they are the worst. But now, how in the world will we know? They all frowned. If which kind is what, or the other way around?
4: Uh, Then up came McBean, with a very shy wink, and he said, Things are not quite as bad as you think, so you don't know who's who. That is perfectly true. But come with me, friends. Do you know what I'll do? I'll make you, again, the best snitches on the beaches, and all it will cost you is ten dollars each.
0: Bally stars are no longer in style, said McBean what you need is a trip through my star-off machine. This wondrous contraption will take off your stars so you won't look like snitches that have them on bars. And that handy machine, working very precisely, removed all the stars from their tummies quite nicely.
3: Then, with snoots in the air, they paraded about. And they opened their beaks, and they let out a shout, We know who is who, now there isn't a doubt, The best kind of sneetches are sneetches without.
0: Then, of course, those with stars all got frightfully mad To be wearing a star was frightfully bad. Then, of course, old Sylvester McMonkey McBean Invited them into his star-off machine. Then, of course, from then on, as you probably guess, things really got into a horrible mess.
4: All well, the rest of that day, on those wild screaming beaches, the fix-it-up chappie kept fixing up snitches. Off again, on again, in again, out again. Through the machines, they raced around and about again.
0: Changing their stars every minute or two, they kept paying money. They kept running through the they kept running through until the plane nor the belly the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one. Or which one was the one or what one was who Then when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix it up chappy packed up and he went, and he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. They never will learn, no, you can't teach a snitch. But McBean was quite wrong, I'm happy to say, that the snitches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that snitches are snitches and no kind of snitch is the best on the beaches. That day, all the snitches forgot about stars and whether they had won or not upon thars.
1: Thank you. Sorry to the ones down here who missed their opportunity for the prime time. Um, I love this story. I think it's insightful to the human condition and also to to some of what I think we want to talk about. In the series and how easily as human creatures we find it to um, figure out what it is that differentiates us from one another and then to use that to create some kind of system whereby some of us become better than or more important than or more powerful than or more popular than or whatever it might be. And I think um, you know, the character uh, McBean in there is in many ways indicative of many of the global corporations in the world at the moment, I think, who recognise that it is conflict that generates the most revenue. And um, that's a problem in a world that is largely driven by revenue creation. Um, and so I think that's like a, one of the fundamental challenges of, of our society in the 21st century, I think. Uh, and perhaps we could say has been one of the fundamental challenges to the human experience for as long as we've been cruising around. And I am convinced that the Christian story has something to offer us in that conversation that might be meaningful and helpful and challenging, um, but that Jesus offers us a way of being in the world that um, might push against the stars or no stars and McBeans of this world. Cool? All right. Um, what I want to do is, by way of I guess, starting this conversation, and and if you, some of you, I'm sure, come into formation reasonably regularly, because I know you do, because I see you here, and some of you, you know, come in and out a little bit, but you'll be aware that we kind of each night is kind of a thing in itself, but they also will connect up, hopefully, in some kind of way to one another as well. Uh, what I want to do today is uh, take a little look at the Christian tradition. But I want to do so uh, with a, what, what kind of uh, perspective shall we say? Let's say it's going to be a little more critical than, than, than normal, or, well, depends on what your normal is. We're going to take a critical look at some aspects of the Christian tradition. This is not to say that we are going to be summing up everything that every Christian has had to say within the last couple of thousand years, and I'm going to unfairly generalise at points along the way Really, just because otherwise we end up in far too much detail for our own good. All right, um, I do this knowing that in real life history is quite nuanced because people are complex. Um, but I'm going to paint some broad brushstrokes and from a particular perspective, and then see what that has to offer us in ways of thinking about. Because one of the things I'm aware of is that religion can be used in a couple of different ways. And in particular, Christian faith can be used in a a couple of different ways. One is to um, stir up and foster and feed off uh, division and exclusion or us and them and so on, or to in fact be a radical antidote to that in the world. Um, And I think that's an interesting conversation to have. So we're going to do a little bit of history. I apologise if that word has um, anxiety-inducing emotions for you, if you, for whatever reason, history was like not your favourite thing at school. We'll try and make it as bearable as possible. And for some of you, you'll be like, yeah, love history. Who's, who who quite enjoys history? Oh, that's why you come to Formation A, you guys. Love it. Um, okay. Okay. Let's maybe make a comment to start with, and I think this is something that I was actually talking with Brennan this morning, that uh, I, um, I was in my 20s, and I was at a you know very uh, large, successful kind of church, I suppose, uh, whatever that means. Um, and without being a, a criticism of that, I think I was used to very much um, reading the Bible from that perspective as this kind of, yes, look at what we're doing. Isn't this wonderful and amazing? And I started doing some theological study, uh, and then you have that moment when you're, you're sitting there, and you say, oh yeah, interesting, oh, oh, ooh, oh, 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 uh, oh, that was kind of my experience of theological study, <laughs> that's uh, how it went, because I, I think one of the things I recognised was that a lot of the biblical text in particular is written by, from the perspective of a very small group of people who are often, not always, but often uh, on the underside of whatever kind of power game is going on at the time. There are moments in the story uh, where, uh, in particular in the Old Testament, where the nation of Israel has some prosperous, successful moments. Uh, But even those are sort of told with a slightly cynical eye because most of those accounts are gathered together much later when the people are actually in exile and they're going back and telling their own story. Uh, So much of the biblical text is written from people on the bottom end of the system, um, but we often, especially in the West, I think, read it from the perspective of those uh, at the other end of the system. Not everybody, not all the time, but you get my general drift, right? And I think that's a helpful thing for us to remember, and I want to perhaps look at, uh, perhaps, not perhaps, I want to look at what we're going to look at Uh, is the early church and what that kind of movement is in its early years and then how that movement shifts and changes uh, over time and what that does to the way we think about uh, the mission and message of the church. All right? You with me? Great. Um, Okay, so let's, let's start in the first century. Early Christianity is essentially in its very, very early years, a subgroup of Judaism. So Christians at the very beginning are generally speaking Jewish people who have come to believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Messiah. So the Jewish people are waiting for Messiah and some of these Jewish people Uh, begin to claim that this Jesus from Nazareth is in fact the Christ or the Messiah that they've been promised or that they've been waiting for. Um, So it's a subgroup of Judaism. First century, Roman Empire, big, powerful empire. Jewish people, one very small group, really, comparatively, in the midst of that quite substantial empire. Yeah? Uh, Christianity subgroup of that group. All right. um, then, uh, if you've read the book of Acts, for example, at one point in the story, they decide it's okay to allow Gentiles, which is our non-Jewish people, uh, to also be a part of this movement. So uh, Peter, it start, that starts with Peter, where he has this experience with Cornelius, uh, where it seems that God pours out the Spirit, whatever, you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, these Gentiles gathered in this house who supposedly are excluded from the story of God and the and, and the people of God, uh, somehow experience God in the midst of this moment when Peter's there. And Peter kind of is like, well, I guess if God's into it, we've got to go with it. And so there's some debate over the coming years as to whether that's allowed or not allowed. And the church has some argy-bargy about this. Uh, and some of Paul's letters you can see um, are dealing with that conflict over and over again because then there are people who are like, well, yes, they're allowed in, but they have to be circumcised. And a lot of the Gentiles were like, could we avoid that one? And this is the days pre, pre-anaesthetic. And um, so uh, there were... And what about, what what, you know, uh, there were Jewish eating customs and rites that came from the Torah and so on, and should Gentiles have... So a lot of the New Testament discussion is trying to figure out what it means for these two very different groups of people who have typically done life in isolation from one another, uh, figuring out what does it mean for these two very different groups of people to come together into Christian communities. Because you've had Jewish people who predominantly have been... uh, Because of their religious Understanding at that time Not allowed into the homes of Gentiles Not allowed to eat with Gentiles uh, And so on And really Gentiles are a symbol of the oppressor To the Jewish people In the first century Uh, Now find these communities with a mixture Of Jewish people and non-Jewish people Sitting in each other's homes Having dinner together Quite revolutionary at the time Actually Yeah Then by the time we get really towards the end of the first century, so the 80s, the 90s, and then over into the hundreds, early hundreds, um, the church has shifted now from being Jewish to being Jewish and Gentile to being mostly Gentile. Uh, And so that's quite a significant shift for the makeup of the church because... um, the story of Jesus kind of emerges from a particularly Jewish narrative. But now you have most of the people following this Jesus who have not been brought up with that particular story or that particular narrative. Uh, and so they are figuring out how to kind of make sense of the Jesus story within the context they find themselves in the Greco-Roman world. With me? Yeah. Great. Um. Remembering, we did talk in our last series that in AD 70... So 30 or 40 years after Jesus um, does the Jesus business, um, Jerusalem is destroyed because there's an uprising in the city um, and in the end the empire decides to crush this kind of Jewish unrest and Jerusalem is burned and destroyed and the nation of Israel as we know it ceases to be at that time. And the Jewish people are once again uh, scattered all around the place. Uh, And so there is now no longer a central hub. So Jerusalem, which had been kind of the central hub of the Christian church, obviously has now uh, been decimated and disintegrated. Uh, And the Jewish people have been flung to the four corners, if you like. Uh, And so the church really starts to form much more in these Gentile communities and homes and so on. Making sense? Yeah, all right. Um, if we were to look at the first three centuries after Jesus, so we're, we're zooming through space and time, um, but if we were to look right up until really the very early 4th century or the very early 300s, uh, the church has a varied relationship with the empire over that period of time. So remembering the church is operating within a Roman empire, that's what they would typically call Pagan, that would be the Jewish word for it. Um, They had the Greco-Roman gods, and um, Christianity was this peculiar group uh, in that empire who, as we talked about last time when we talked about the the beast and the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff, uh, who refused to worship the Caesar, who didn't exactly play by all of the rules of the empire in terms of even the way they treated one another, um, the way they treated... Um, women and slaves and uh, and so on. So they were this odd group. At best, they were strange. That was kind of best case scenario. Curious. What an, what an odd group of people. They don't go to the temples. They don't worship Caesar, but they don't also worship our gods. Instead, they just meet in each other's homes and they eat um, this guy's body and drink his blood. Uh, so... Sometimes the empire was kind of neutral about this. Uh, Sometimes at a local level, even if at an empire level it was neutral at a local level, they would experience a fair amount of persecution or at least mocking. And then sometimes the empire was determined to try and crush this kind of Christian business going around saying Jesus is Lord and Saviour and so on. Uh, In particular, in the second half of the first century, that's really acute with people like Nero uh, and others. Um, but it also emerges from time to time in the Roman Empire where particular emperors have a particularly um, negative attitude towards Jesus' people. Um, so one of the things that uh, early Christian theologians were doing in the 2nd century, for example, so mid one, early, mid, late 100s, uh, is trying to defend Christianity and explain Christianity in a way that made sense to people so that maybe some of this um, kind of various kinds of persecution would ease somewhat. Um, So that's some of what's going on uh, at that time. Um, So sometimes there's violence. Uh, Often there's harsh criticism, especially in in the realm of ideas amongst the philosophers, Everybody looked at Christianity and thought it was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever seen or heard of. Um, because firstly, they were going around saying somehow God was present in this, in this story of Jesus, but Jesus was a guy who got killed, so that kind of been very, I mean, what kind of God are we talking about? For starters, uh, there was also a real class prejudice towards the church at this time because the church was, for the most part, made up of the underside of society. So you didn't tend to have many Roman elites in the church at this time. It was a lot of women, a lot of slaves or former slaves, uh, or people who were typically lower down on the rungs of the system of the empire. Obviously exceptions to this, once again, broad generalizations. Um, So there's religious prejudice, your ideas are dumb. That's kind of what they got told a lot. And class prejudice, you guys are dumb. Uh, it's kind of, uh, and, and you're not worth much, and look at your ridiculous religion and the kind of people it's made up of and the kind of silly things you say. is encouraging. And um, sometimes that would break out into real violence and sometimes just ridicule. Um, one of the things on that class bridge is one of the things that Christians got ridiculed for was throwing, or throwing, was holding funeral services for the poor. So in Roman society at that time, the poor would, would of course not get anything like any kind of commemoration of their lives when they passed away because they were poor. So they didn't. They were on the bottom of the system. So they didn't deserve, or just there was no reason for them to get to that kind of thing. And yet Christians, when the poor among their communities would die, uh, would give them these these services of remembrance. Uh, and that was one of the things that was really mocked by the Roman Empire at the time, which is interesting. I think it's a really beautiful thing to get mocked for. Um, ah, yes, claims of cannibalism. There were, people didn't really get the whole eating the body and blood, drinking the blood of Jesus thing. Uh, so there were a lot of rumours going around that Christians were cannibals. Um, Christians were atheists. Because there wasn't a God that you could see. Um, or there was no temple even, right? So atheistic, cannibalistic, um, poor-loving people. What a bunch. Um, You still tracking? Yeah? Good. Uh, By the time we get to the late 3rd century, so we're in the late 200s, uh, one of the particular emperors, we've, we've got an emperor who's who's not fond of the Christians, and so there's this great persecution that breaks out again at this time. Um, one of the things that uh, really got up the nose of the empire was Christians refusing to join the army. And so Christians wouldn't join the empire's army a lot of the time, and that was seen as treasonous, treacherous to the empire. Uh, a lot of early Christians were pacifists, so they... Refused to fight uh, in in any kind of military sense. Um, So that was seen as kind of uh, treachery. And um, also the, the Caesar cult of the kind of the worship of Caesar thing had flared up again. And so Christians were often arrested at this time. And then, you know, will you join the army? Will you make sacrifices to our gods? Will you claim devotion and worship of Caesar? And if not, then... Uh, oftentimes they'd be executed. Um, at this time, they or, or they would lose a lot of privileges in society. So the, the various privileges that might be given to them as a Roman citizen would be stripped away if they would keep holding allegiance to Jesus. Um, a lot of church leaders were arrested at this time, and they tried to force a lot of Christians to make sacrifices to the to the various gods. Um, all right, that's a pretty pretty cheery story. Um, <laughs> But this is the first few centuries of the church. And I think that's really interesting to consider. It's certainly not been my experience of being a Christian. I mean, when I was 15, it was my job in Morrinsville to put out the the church. My dad was a pastor. Uh, My mum was a pastor too, but, you know, she was a woman pastor. Um... (laughs) And uh, it was my job to take, there was like a sandwich board with the old church sign on it that you'd stick out on the footpath and that would always draw the crowds. Um, So uh, (laughs) it was my job to go down the stairs and and stick the old um, sandwich board out with Moronsville Elam or whatever it was at the time. That's what it was. Um, And and I remember because I was also playing piano in the music team. uh, And we used to sing this song called I'm Not Ashamed of the gospel of his name and so we'd practice that i'm not ashamed it was a little bluesy it was bluesy number it was pretty nifty um there was this, there was a spelling thing in it too you know something about jesus and then a j e s u s you know zuz jazz jazzy uh anyway practice that. you might be thinking where is the story going great question um <laughs> We'd practice that and then I would be given the job of going out and putting out the sandwich board and then I would kind of, I'd get to the bottom of the stairs, on the main street of Morrinsville and then I would look left and I would <laughs> look right and I'd say, anybody from school? Nope. <sighs> Sign back in. <sighs> back up to singing I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, but that's, you know, that's pretty much how my persecution has been. Uh, pretty light and mostly self-made, Yeah. That was a truly, truly terrible song. Um, So my experience is quite different to this experience, but I think this experience is really important to reflect on, because this is the kind of experience out of which the Christian scriptures come, and and out of which many of the very early Christian thinkers and theologians also come. This is the kind of context in which they're doing their work. So I have a question for us. Oh, checking the time, man. We're racing through the time, not through the material. I have a question for us to... Oh, see that? There it is. Just for a couple of minutes. We won't spend long on this, but I'd love us to just reflect on the question. When we think about this being the context, yeah? What could this mean for the way we read New Testament texts and early Christian thinkers? Now, you might be like, I have no idea what the answer to that question will be. And that is an entirely appropriate thing to say. And someone else in your group might have something else to say. And if you all say that, well, then pray and see what the Lord tells you. Um, but generally what we're trying to get at here is, if that's the context, how, how does that help us to think about what kinds of people and what kind of world these people are living in and writing in? What are they trying to do? Um, does that make sense? If it doesn't, work it out together. All right couple of minutes on that question, talking amongst yourselves. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I did say I'd just give you a couple of minutes for this one. Um, does anyone have anything that's just come up in their group that they think is particularly wonderful, they'd like to share? Or at least they just like it's a question or a comment? Yes. Always good for a comment. Given the limited time available.
0: So we felt that nowadays the text is often used to say get in line, this is how you should behave, you need to conform to this. Whereas back then perhaps um, the the, the context um, meant that the Christians and the people who were following um, their teaching weren't actually conforming to what everyone else was conforming to. Um,
1: That's a very interesting insight, isn't it? That you can, yes... The text is, is used often to get people to conform, but originally written as an anti-conforming message in many respects. I think that's, yeah, very interesting insight. Anyone else? Yes.
3: Uh, this was one of my thoughts was around uh, just the, the whole sub- sub- subverting the empire and are not being hit on uh, so so rather than being anti-roman empire where they lose their heads uh, a lot of their their thoughts and and, and things subverted the, the values and the norms of of the empire so they weren't always hit on um, but again they weren't they didn't want people to conform to the empire
1: Yeah, it was subversion shaped by love in that sense. Uh, And so one of the central ideas of Jesus was was love of enemies, including the empire. Not to love the empire, but to love the people in it. So the subversion did not mean uh, hatred. And I think that's an important point as well.
3: You know, it's an interesting statement that the Bible encourages us to obey the law, encourages us to recognise that the powers that be are ordained of God. And that almost, you know, when we look at the sort of tension between the Christians and the empire, here it is with, within the New Testament, a statement that we need to be good citizens.
1: Yes, um, and held in tension with other statements by the same writer, in this case Paul, um, which clearly subvert elements of what it is that the empire wants. Uh, and so these things are held in tension even within the New Testament. Uh, there is a sense of being a, a good citizen in the world in which you live, um, but not at the expense of staying faithful to the Jesus whom they are to follow. And so when those things come into conflict with one another, that's when there's this different way of being in the world that's offered to the followers of Jesus. But yes, Andrew.
2: Yeah, I'm just kind of overwhelmed by how discouraging it might have been for the first Christians. Like from generation after generation after generation, they're trying to observe Jesus' teaching, trying to, you know, like do it Christ's way and to love your enemies. And still after like six generations, you know, 200, almost 300 years, they they're just facing the same same old same old, and I know for like the Jews like they're very literal thinkers about like about God's deliverance or Messiah, you know that the Messiah would change things you know and they really believe that that Christ's message that love will win over violence in the end, you know, and so for not making any yeah you know, I would feel really discouraged about feeling that like we're are we making any progress you know after my grandparents, their grandparents, and my grandp- their grandparents have all, we're all still suffering, uh, we're all still being persecuted and are we making any progress with this love thing?
1: Yeah, sure. And, and yet at the same time in some way I think they were seeing um, that Christianity, I mean the reason it keeps popping up in the Roman Empire is because it keeps spreading. Uh, it keeps um, finding its way into these communities and, these communities of, that, that bring together all of these really, really diverse people into into church communities was having this kind of profound impact and then another wave of persecution would break out. And we, we talked about uh, in the last series about how even the book of Revelation itself was uh, a text which was trying to say there's something else going on here also. And so I think one of the things that shaped hope for the early Christians in this time was that it might look like this is what's happening, but God says to us there's something else happening here and love, in fact, is overcoming um, violence and, 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 and death and so on. So, um, But yeah, it's, an, it's interesting to reflect on the experience of, of Christians for several hundred years at this time. Um, what we'll do is stand and have a stretch and then we'll see what happens when the worm turns and Christians become the empire. Yes. So we'll um, we'll change gears here as we head into the fourth century, because we've got sixteen hundred years to make up uh, and some reflection to do. So um, we're going to do some very broad brushstrokes. And see where that gets us to, I think one of the things I reflect on as I think about this first few hundred years is that one of the things you see Christians doing in the scriptures uh, and also in the in the early works of some of those early theologians is advocate really strongly for Christians and for Christian identity, um, in part because they were advocating for their place in the world. Uh, the problem for me comes later when Christians no longer need to advocate for their place in the world but use those same texts uh, now to in service of a different kind of um, modus operandi, we might say. Uh, and I, so I think uh, even when Christians in some of the New Testament texts, for example, are pushing quite strongly for a sense of uh, this is what it means to be Christian, uh, even um, the Apostles' Creed, which emerges around the middle of the 2nd century, around 150, we think, uh, these are the things we as Christians believe, was a sense of trying to gather up Christian identity and say this is who we are in this world that is trying to sort of uh, squeeze us out. This is something we can centre ourselves on and say this is this is what it means to be Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, later on, a little bit like what we said before where um, the text which has been in some ways written from, from the underside, then becomes the thing to which everybody must conform, uh, and I think that's an important shift to note. All right, so let's see. Let's see what happens. Some of you will be familiar with aspects of this story. Um, in the early fourth, so we had we've had that great persecution breakout late two hundreds, early three hundreds. Uh, there's all sorts of empire machinations going on at this time, and, and in the end, uh, Constantine. Uh, takes power, uh, defeats uh, Maxentius in a a battle. And Constantine, so the legend goes, had a vision or a dream in which he saw the sign of a cross and the phrase, uh, in this sign, conquer. And so he paints the shields of his army with this cross and wins the battle. Uh, now that's an interesting shift from the Christians who wouldn't join the army prior to now. This guy who's just taken power as the new emperor, saying essentially it was the cross of Jesus that enabled him to win a great military victory over his enemy. Hmm. Okay, that's Constantine. A complex person, I don't wish to just paint Constantine as, an, as a terrible, terrible person. We're just making observations about, uh, about what, in reality, uh, uh, nuanced, complex situations, generalisations will be made. That's my 15th caveat for today. Um, now, Constantine then becomes, he doesn't become an official convert because he says, I can't be the emperor and be officially a Christian. Uh, because I have to do things as the emperor that kind of aren't very Christian. Uh, so he converts on his, he, he, he waits till he's on his deathbed before he gets baptised and officially becomes a Christian. It's kind of the classic, whole I'll do it at the end kind of business. Um, but he is very favourable towards Christianity and elevates Christianity uh, so that it actually shifts from being this persecuted minority to becoming, in quite a short space of time, the dominant religion of the empire. And that's a rapid and radical change to the status of Christianity and Christians themselves. And, you know, talking before about the kind of the um, discouragement that it might be to have been like, man, I'm now sixth, seventh-generation Christian who have been suffering under the weight of this. Now suddenly you are special and amazing because you're a Christian. Um, so can you read that? Christianity becomes prefer- uh, the preferred religion... Uh, and in fact becomes a status marker. So now the thing that was you were prejudiced against for being now swung around and became the thing you were elevated for being. So now if you were a Christian, that gave you enhanced status. So if you were someone, and in the Roman society, you were always looking to increase status. So now Christianity became a means to enhance your own status. Um, so Richard Fletcher, historian, notes this. Uh, imperial patronage... The support of Christianity by the empire colossally increased the wealth and status of the churches. Privilege and exemptions granted to the Christian clergy precipitated a stampede into the priesthood. Basically, you had a whole lot of people now wanting to be priests in the church because that gave them all sorts of rights and privileges um, within society at the time. That's interesting, isn't it? I think. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Laura. Is that Laura? I recognise that yeah. Um, so uh, this it's the, this this is the time then when ministers in the church begin to wear different clothes to the people and so on. Like all of that stuff starts to evolve because now the priests have become people with particular kind of status in society, and so they need things to mark them as as particularly notable or important within the community and within the church. Um, One of the other things that happens is that theological disagreements now do not just become discussions happening in that group over there, but become potential threats to the stability of the empire. So in in the late teens and early 20s of the 300s, there is a theological... Um, hubbub I believe that's the technical term around Jesus and what people believed about Jesus and whether Jesus was truly divine or not divine and so on and Constantine it is who calls the council and says you all have got to get together and sort this out because this kind of conflict within the church is bad for the stability of the empire again that's a really interesting move because I think Christians and theologians had always been interested in trying to figure out what do we believe and why, and is this stuff we should believe or shouldn't? And if someone pops up with an interesting or different idea, we've got to figure out if we accept that or not accept that. But this was the first time that the stability of the empire was considered to be at stake when you were having those conversations. And so um, Constantine was very keen for orthodoxy to be established, everybody to say, this is what Christians believe, and don't disagree with it, because if you disagree with it, you're out. Get out. Uh, go on. Uh, and, and so that shapes a particular kind of theological conversation. No longer are we necessarily having a, a debate or a disagreement, um, but we are wanting to root out the heretics among us for fear that they will bring down the empire, or at least make it hard to govern. Yeah? Yeah? Again, that gives a particular shape to the kind of theological conversation you're having within the church. It's not to say that all of the theological conversations themselves are therefore not worth paying attention to. There are still wonderful thinkers doing important work. It's just that the conversation has been given a, a tone to it that is shaped by the context that it's in now, which is you all need to sort this out and get rid of those heretics so that we can get the empire running smoothly. Um. Oh it said that. Yes. So orthodoxy, in that sense, is a stabilising political force. Um. Yes. Um. Now, over time, eventually, we sort of now we're going to start fast forwarding through time. Um. The Roman Empire. Um. I guess, becomes essentially synonymous with Christianity over time. And so uh, the kingdom of God is the Roman Empire and the empire is the kingdom of God. God rules on the earth through uh, the empire and through the church. Um, So once again, that's quite a quick change, really, if you think about the whole history of the Jewish people and then the Christian people, which has predominantly been on the underside now we are the we are the powerful ones, and the empire is the church, is the kingdom, is God's business in the world. Um, there was certainly the idea now that we could make if this is the empire and it continues to grow and expand, we could make the whole world Christian, and wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to do? We could just we could make them all Christian. It'd be awesome. Whether they get a choice or not, or not is a different question, but. Uh, <laughs> um, The, the emperors at this time often would get a say, if not the final say, in things that became orthodoxy within the theological conversation. So again, theologians get together, have important conversations, debate things and discuss things, but then they would have to go to the emperor often and say, so this is what we're going to say, and he could be loved. Like, I don't know if that's really going to work or, yes, it's going to work. So we see this very typical alignment of what we would say now, church and state, you know? Um, And it's similar to what we see sometimes in the Old Testament story as well. Um, You still with me? Yeah, good. Okay. What we get then over time is the Roman Empire starting to decline Now, I'm not a brilliant historian of this period, and some of you out there probably know way more about this than me because you're smart-looking people. Um, So I'm not going to tell you why the Roman Empire went into decline, um, except to say that it does. Over a period of time, lots of conflict. Uh, The Germanic Empire ends up coming through. You've got Attila the Hun. You've got all sorts of other uh, competing forces starting to wrest control of certain parts of the world. Uh, you've got divisions in the church itself between and the empire itself between east, east and west. Uh, in particular, the church is really starting to divide on east and west lines. Um, and so you've got that happening. You've got the emergence of different empires, none as big really at this time as the Roman Empire, but much more local forces or people coming in and taking this part and then other people rising up and taking this part. Um, really the last kind of Roman emperor in uh, his brilliant move, um, as he's exiting, really, his role as emperor because the Roman Empire is dissolving, makes himself the Pope. Um, and that's a brilliant move because he then is in charge of the church. And although different empires have come along now and different countries are competing for power, the church has spread its influence right throughout all of those parts. So the Pope, in a sense, becomes the most powerful figure uh, in the world. That was, that was clever. I would, it's smart play. Um, you've got the emergence of feudal societies and lords and peasants and all that kind of stuff that starts to emerge in these middle dark ages and middle ages and so on. Not going to go through heaps of that. The Pope's business at times does get a little um, testy. Uh, there are quite a few assassinations, poisonings, stranglings, stabbings, Popes getting rid of or people wanting to be pope and taking down the previous guy and replacing him. So the pope was, in this sense, quite a. Uh, this is not a, a anti-Catholic message. This is just a reflection of the fact that at this time, for fear, you know. Uh, I don't think I did that right. Um, it's just that at this particular point in time, by the eighth, ninth, tenth centuries, it's all there's all of these political power plays that are going on that have captivated the church because the church has become. Uh, much more in the business of controlling the masses and therefore it becomes a a position of power. And whenever there's massive positions of power like that, people inevitably start fighting for control. And that's what happens. And so orthodoxy is being used as a means to control people and uh, appointments in the church are being used as as essentially political manoeuvres to get power. And love Jesus too. I think somewhere along there. It's during this kind of, you know, during this kind of time that you have the monastic tradition which essentially say, I don't want any part of that business and so they would go out into the the desert, the desert fathers and, and, and so on, and some of the mystics and others who essentially rejected that whole empire system and withdrew from it. And that's where a lot of our brilliant brilliant uh, and beautiful thinking and theology and conversation actually emerged from. Are those people who rejected that whole business. So that's good. It's like a it's the bright side. Um, so in the end uh, the, Pope, uh, the, the idea emerged that the Pope Could be judged by no one uh, All the princes and kings Were supposed to come and kiss the feet of the Pope uh, So it's a pretty powerful position it's, uh, You've also had at this time Where at what time are we? Oh yeah oh, Speeding up now <clears throat> uh, 7th, 8th century The rise of another religious movement Anyone know? Islam, right? Uh, And in particular in parts of the Middle East and the uh, Arabic world and so on, around that part of the region of the world, uh, the world of Islam is growing and now taking uh, hold. And that becomes a bit of a threat to people in the north and in the west. Uh, And so uh, you get these um, rousing kind of, we must take back Jerusalem for the Lord uh, movements, uh, which we might call the Crusades uh, and so the Crusades were these uh, big moments of conflict, obviously between uh empires uh sorry armies fighting on behalf of uh, Islam and armies fighting on behalf of Christians again, broad brush strokes uh, what would Donald Trump say? There are good people on both sides oh, let's not use that phrase <coughs> should uh, that that'll be deleted from the podcast <coughs> um no, the, uh, the, the history of that whole thing is complicated, right? But needless to say, uh, the church was certainly complicit in all sorts of um, pretty violent behaviour uh, tromping down through parts of the world and that continues to foster and to fuel conflict today between the Islamic world and the West. A lot of it is grounded in uh, the Crusades and the history that emerges out of that. Um, Along the way, especially if they would lose a battle against the Muslims, uh, what the Christians would tend to do is massacre some Jews to make themselves feel better. So after on their return back home, they would just massacre Jews on the way. Um, And there was quite a rhetoric within the church, you know, well, the Jews killed Jesus, so... um, Yeah. There's a few problems, eh? You reckon? (laughs) Um, Interesting to note, if we're going to think about who the church is now, uh, that growing up for me, the word crusade was used to really um, label what we did when we did evangelism. And, you know, Billy Graham crusade, right? 1959 in New Zealand and crusades since. I just find the language is interesting, right, because the language is borrowed from then. Um, and I'm not saying that the people running those evangelistic crusades were trying to um, do what the crusades did. <laughs> Obviously, it's a big difference. They were trying to save people's souls, not um, kill them. Um, but the language tells you something about the mentality of West- Western Christianity to some degree. Um, All right, let's just really bring it home with depression. Uh, Let's go into... um... (sighs) We're going to send you out on a high note. We're going to have to bring this around, eh? We're going to have to bring it around (laughs) before we finish. Um, So, look, uh, North America, a lot of uh, Christians went to North America in search of a life where they could practice religious freedom away from... Uh, both the Catholic Church and then the rising empire of the Church of England and and other stuff like that, and the Protestant Church. Uh, So the Puritans and others who all went off to this brave new world to build this glorious uh, nation founded upon, you know, the wonderful Lord. Um, But you know what's really good for building a new empire? (laughs) Um, One is um, generally wiping out the people who are there uh, because they're heathens, savages. Again, that language itself, shaped by a particular religious mentality. Uh, and then what if we just got a bunch of people in from somewhere else, people who didn't matter so much, and get them to do our stuff for us? Uh, so you, it's, um, it's a painful story, but it's shaped and justified within the Christian tradition uh, and by biblical texts that are, again, taken by those with power and misused rather than being recognized in the context. And so you take a text which is written by people with no power who are saying, we've got no power to change the system, so therefore, if we've got slaves and this kind of whole thing happening, let's treat each other like family. Many, many years later, which is what Paul's doing in Philemon, he's saying, hey, embrace the slave as your brother, not as a slave. Many years later, people are saying, see, Paul's all right with slavery. No problem, that's what the Bible says. Um, So again, reading it from a different perspective shapes the way they then apply it. Uh, And really, in in many respects, what built North America into an economic powerhouse in the world is 12 million slaves who generated their cotton and tobacco industry in particular in those early um, years, uh, which caused North America in large part to be the kind of prosperous nation that it is today. Hurrah. Um, yeah. <laughs> not your fault, Laura. Not holding you personally responsible. Um, and then we could also say, honestly, we are going to take this up, um, that the British Empire, also shaped by a particular religious narrative, um, goes, spreads their empire through the world now, again, with a particular religious flavour. So let's go and, and not just spread the gospel, but let us civilise the savages. So it was the gospel, but it was also civilization. It was um, civilisation. Um, let's show these violent savages how to live a much more appropriate, civilised life by um, killing them until they submit. Um, it's interesting what we call savage, actually. Um, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think if you do it with a uniform on and like arranged in some kind of formal order, it stops it from being savage and then it just becomes the politics of war. Um, But that language is shaped not just by the empire but by the appropriation of religious language uh, into the forces of colonisation in the world. All right, what a cheery, cheery tune we have sung to ourselves since the halftime break. Um, The reason I wanted to cover all of this is that I think we have to be honest with our past, with our history. Yes, I could have told the story of all sorts of wonderful people in the history of the church, but I've intentionally um, talked about it from a different angle because this is the history with which our society is now wrestling And much of the reaction to Christianity and the reaction to the church that's going on in the world at the moment is because of this story. And if we don't come to terms with that and look it in the face and say this is the story of at least one aspect of our tradition, then I think we're unable to have any kind of healthy contribution to make in our communities going forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think we've got to to front up to the story. And we've got to ask ourselves, what has this meant for the way we've talked about what it is to be Christian um, and what it is to do Christian mission? Even um, So I've got a couple of questions for us to discuss before we finish, because we need to have some discussion to you know, shake some of that off and make ourselves feel better. Oh Yes, I had the Inquisition in my notes, but I skipped over it. But yes, Spanish Inquisition. Uh, if you want to go and Google that afterwards, just to, if you are like, I'm not sure if I got enough of the mm, the negative vibes. Just go and Google smudging <laughs> inquisition afterwards. Um, you know this this is what shaped the you know heretics. Heretic. I mean, that's a particular kind of la- language matters, doesn't it? So you find someone with a with a different theological view than you, then you have an argument. They're wrong and you're right. You've got the the powerful or the or the uh, the the majority on your side, so they become the heretic who you then shun and exclude, and then over time, as things degenerate, you persecute, kill, burn at the stake, whatever it is that you see fit um, to do. when a Protestant Reformation broke out in the sixteenth century, uh, there was great violence by Catholics against Protestants and then by Protestants against Catholics and Protestants against other Protestants and um, always trying to figure out who is the heretic among us Who is the one who's, who needs to be cast out That we can punish to make ourselves feel like we are God's good ones um, So I said at the beginning our whole conversation is one of What does it mean to belong uh, without belonging against by our belonging being defined by who we cast out and who we shun, is there another way to think about what it means to belong? And I am particularly convinced that this history, especially what we've been just talking about in the second half, is not reflective of the kind of uh, spirituality and faith and religious tradition that Jesus was inviting us to participate in. And so although in some sense Christianity has been the cause of all this kind of stuff, it's only one humans will grab whatever they can to do this to one another because we're like the sneetches on the beaches. And we're always looking for power and for belonging. And, uh, and so we will take religion, we will take politics, we will take class, we will take ethnicity, we'll take whatever we can and we'll turn it into a power system and a power struggle that tries to give us as much power as possible. And I'm convinced that the Jesus story in particular, what it's trying to do is undo that way of being in the world and offer us a different way of being in the world. Yeah? Okay. A couple of questions for us then. Uh, I did say we'd we'd do that um, before we can have some dinner and cheer ourselves up with Pad Thai. Yes. Oh. So just two real low-key questions for you. Uh, How do you think empire and even the idea of colonisation in particular – how are these shaped concepts like the mission and the evangelism of the church? Uh, and another question, which is, I think, one we want to keep considering as we go through this particular series, which is what could be distinctive about the church and Christianity that is not actually based in exclusion? In other words, what's distinctive about Christian identity that's not based in here's who we keep out? Cool? All right, let's have a quick chat about that for a few minutes before we finish. Okay, okay, okay. So that's a conversation I feel like could go on for a while. Um, and in a sense, is the conversation I think we want to have over the next few formations in different ways, coming at this from different angles. Uh, One of the reasons, I guess, that I think this is important for Christians to think about, well, there's lots of reasons. Um, Let me say this. In the 1960s, 1970s, in the West, sociologists became convinced that the West was secularizing and religion was disappearing, and that this was fundamentally going to be a good thing in the end. Um, and then other thinkers since then and scientists and and others emerging to say essentially what religion does is divide people and so if we get rid of religion we'll all learn to get along much better Uh, imagine there's no heaven, right? it's easy if you try that'll help us all get along what I think perhaps people are starting to see, um, is some people anyway, or I'm going to say this is what I see, that's a better way to say it, uh, is that in fact that does not help us get all, all get along because the problem isn't in itself necessarily religion, but the way that it's used and the way that people engage in it um, in collaboration with power And if you take religion out, people will find something else to do that with. Um, And so you could look at something like um, Stalinist Russia in the mid-20th century and suggest that the removal of religion in that context did not necessarily cause the flourishing of human community. Uh, you might say, was not flourishing. Uh, It was violent and oppressive because it was people with power using it to exclude and marginalise and subjugate and oppress and destroy. And so I think, although religion, and in particular the Christian faith, has been used uh, to do some very um, horrendous things. Um, Just trying to get rid of it and just being like, you know what, well then the whole thing's big waste and let's just stuff the whole thing and all get along. Uh, That doesn't work either, actually. And I think um, coming back to who Jesus is and the story of Jesus offers us, as I said before, a different way of navigating through this particular journey because I actually think otherwise all we're left with is politics and economics <laughs> um, and our position in society and we've got to work it out somehow that way and I think that uh, there's more going on here than that uh, and that, that our faith tradition actually offers us a much greater and richer resource with which to navigate our way through these interesting times in the world. Um, Are there any particular reflections that really stood out but I'm also conscious of of time not wanting to get away from us but is there anything that anyone had burning out of that conversation? Dietrich. This
4: is kind of more maybe, I'll just say it. The other question I have that kind of is linked to these questions is, is power bad? You know, we talk about, Empire and we talk about things like this and uh, the question that I have is well then Christians like uh, yeah, I don't know how to word that or rephrase that any better than what's kind of milling around in my head but just that idea around power and and my currently at the moment my theological stance is that power is not a good thing but then it's like well then, where there's no leadership, there's no, you just remove all the, you know, I shouldn't have power, you know, but, yeah, so, I don't know, I feel like that was a bit of a blindside question to this conversation, but
1: just check it out there. I think it's a really important question. I usually refrain from just, you know, commenting on everybody's things, but I will say one thing about power, because I think it's a really important conversation, is that whether you like it or not, there is always power at work, there's always power dynamics at play. You can't eliminate power. I have power in this room at the moment because I've got the microphone most of the time and I control all I give it to. Um, generally speaking, now if you all decided to run at me, I'd find that my power was limited. Um, <laughs> but then I could excommunicate you and then have the power back. Um, <laughs> you know, but, there, but there's always there's always Power in relationships and power dynamics at play. Uh, And that's not bad or good. I think it just is in that sense. I think the question for us is what does it look like to be aware of it? And to ask the question of what does it look like to um, negotiate a world of power dynamics uh, that honours the dignity and humanity of one another? in beautiful ways rather than abusive and oppressive ways. Uh, and I think Jesus is, for, for me, in my tradition then, is and what I believe about Christ, uh, becomes the central or the starting point for that conversation um, because what the New Testament seems to claim is that Jesus has all the power in the world. All authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus Christ uh, so there's this language in that sense of power, but then there is this example of what does that look like in an outworking of relationship with, other, with others. Um, and I think that's where Jesus flips that around and uses it in surprising and um, in different ways. That's, I guess, a short comment on it, but I think that's a, a great reflection and conversation to keep having because I think it's really important. Anything else burning that anyone wants to say out of the conversation you had? Your group? What you say, no, um, oh, no, I don't
3: need that. Don't you? Okay. You said you were going to cheer us up before you I think a nice little rendition of I am not ashamed.
1: Oh man, you know, I'm Not Ashamed was the first song I ever played on the piano at Hastings Elam actually when I was 11 years old I got called up out of the crowd Michael Frost, he knows how to play this song There I trundled up to the front to play I'm Not Ashamed I actually got it wrong earlier, I realised when I spelt out J-E-S-U-S or whatever it was S-A-V-E-D, actually it was saved It was when I'm saved S-A-V-E-D, S-A-V-E-D You know, it it was snazzy there you go, that's, that's what you're gonna get, that's your pick-me-up. Now that is gonna sound good on the podcast. Uh, right, so all of that to say, there is both um, I think a challenge and an opportunity in this conversation. The challenge is we have to negotiate uh, the dark side of our own past and history and tradition. But the invitation is to say there are also rich resources within that tradition with which I think we can uh, be invited into unfolding a different kind of present and future for us uh, as followers of Christ. And there have been many, many people as a, in our tradition who have done that work for us also. So we are not suddenly starting this journey anew uh, but although I've, sort of, I've focused on the darker side of the trajectory, there are all sorts of other things that have been happening within the, uh, the conversation of the church that are, in fact, a, a beautiful and, and rich resource for us. Um, and in terms of that second question, I would say one of the radical things that marked Christians as unique in the early church was, in fact, the, the way they included rather than excluded. So one of their defining markers was itself an embrace and an inclusiveness of those who were different, whether it be ethnic, economic, social class, whatever it might be. Uh, We are all one in Christ Jesus and we are all a part of the body of Christ. Those were phrases and images and ideas that were supposed to offer a beautiful, inclusive space and community for people to come into and find a place to belong, but a place to belong that wasn't everybody out there is bad and we're the good ones, but was actually, there's a big invitation here to participate in something good. That's our pick-me-up, other than obviously my great rendition of I'm Not Ashamed. Is that okay? Yeah? So next time, yes, Linda. (laughs) Do we have to be... No, we'd probably... Well, you've just been to a conference called, what, The Path of Descent is The Path of Ascent? I'm saying We feel like... I think we just... We have to know what...
0: We have to own stuff. mm Sin and I my away, but perhaps the invitation process us is to um, uh, turn away from the sin of the empire, mm-hmm. you know, to own these things that we have mm-hmm. actually historically the been a kind part of before we can
1: become a part of that group that this minority gang in Uganda, and under, you know, looking at things from the bottom up, and it's difficult
0: cool for white listeners to we don't really know what we're going to until we come to terms with it and see it ourselves and then when we can, then we can start
1: again mm. in a new way, and a Jesus way. I don't know, we have to keep on picking ourselves up. Maybe we should just stay in this very digital space really, yeah. you know what I mean, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, sure. Good Linda. Yes, um, I think I'm often yeah, I often wonder about that myself and because I think especially when you've you've got this kind of responsibility to coordinate a conversation with people, um, and you want it somehow to be a hopeful conversation, not just like a you know, hey guys, why don't we all gather together and talk again about how terrible you know depressing things are. But um, but I think the temptation then is to always look for a way to sort of polish the turd, so to speak.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I want you to come back. That's right, Andrew. Um, and I know that people's lives are complex and difficult and sometimes wearying. and so coming into a space and having to deal with big, confronting, uh, honest conversation can be hard too, you know? So I'm I'm mindful of that as I'm kind of facilitating these conversations, but I but I I think that's good advice, Linda, um, for us to be able to sit in the reality of it without having to sort of wind ourselves back up at the end. So I, I, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um. We've gone on a little long, but I think that's worth it. And we're going to have some dinner together. Next time we are going to be, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about uh, the language of holiness and purity and how that develops in ancient religion, uh, but how it can become very unhealthy when conceived of badly. And interacts with a psychology of um, disgust and social boundaries and inclusion and exclusion and so on. So that's, it's gonna be fun. Yeah! <laughs> I just have to say it, don't I? Uh, no, we will be actually. It'll we'll be good. Uh, cool. Can I say a prayer and then go back to Clint for some? Clint, you're all right? I heard we had, you know, you're, <laughs> you're good? Oh, great. How's the pad tie? Come together well? Uh, Let me say a prayer to the Lord. Hello, Lord. Um, Thank you for being present uh, in the beautiful and horrible, in the light and the darkness and in the, I guess we could say, the mountain and the valley Um, Thank you for being present in our story and in our history, not just of our tradition and of the church, but of our own lives, which are complex and ambiguous and a mixture of beautiful things and not beautiful things. Uh, Thank you that you are present with us. Uh, You are our guide. You are before us and behind us. uh, And you are offering us, as you always are offering us, a path ahead, an invitation into a Jesus way. So help us as a community to find it and to find you and to continue to discover what it means to follow that path. Um, in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Clint.